being transparent and reproducible in your research is not just a nice thing to do, but it is actually relevant for career success. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Legg. The paleopathologist Arthur Ofterheide said, all knowledge is connected to all other knowledge. The fun is in making the connections. In the first of this two-part episode, Brian Nosick and Tim Arrington from the Center for Open Science talk about the important role of open science in accelerating scientific progress. In part two, they'll share stories from a cancer replication conducted as part of the center's attempt to reproduce impactful published research. This episode is sponsored by the Center for Open Science. The center believes an open exchange of ideas accelerates scientific progress towards solving our most challenging problems. At the Center for Open Science, you can pre-register your research proposals, pre-print your research articles, and share all of your research documentation in one place. Share your research with the world by using their free innovative tool, the Open Science Framework. Learn more at www.cos.io. Now, back to Parsing Science. Here's Brian Nosek and Tim Arrington. My name is Brian Nosek. I am a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia and executive director of the Center for Open Science. Uh, the center is actually a spin-out uh, of uh, work that started in my laboratory at UVA, uh, where a grad student at the time, Jeff Spees, and I uh, started to work on building tools, software, to make it easier for researchers to share their data, called the OSF, or Open Science Framework. And uh, we started a lab-based project uh, that became a... Uh, a crowdsourced replication project to try to reproduce findings from a, a, a significant sample of studies from the psychological literature. And then we got uh, funding for uh, advancing the tools and the replication efforts from the Laura and John Arnold Foundation. And we used that to convert these lab-based projects into a, a standalone nonprofit, which is COS. I'm Tim Arrington. I'm the Meta-Science Manager at the Center for Open Science. Um, prior to that, I was finishing my PhD at the uh, University of Virginia, um, and at the, the end of that, I learned about the Center for Open Science, which had just started about six months prior to that, this is back in 2013, um, and learned about uh, funding that was given to the center to conduct a large-scale reproducibility project in preclinical cancer biology. And um, you know, reached out, loved loved the idea of both the center and the project, and um, met with Brian when there were very few people here in the office, and was uh, fortunate enough to basically find myself in this position of of leading the project and being a part of this team and watching it grow. Brian is perhaps most well known for leading an attempt to replicate 100 papers published in top-tier psychology journals, an undertaking which Science Magazine identified as a leading scientific breakthrough in 2015. We wondered how this interest in the replicability of scientific research came about. For me, it was in uh, graduate school when I took a research methods class from Alan Kasdan, uh, who was a, a prominent uh, clinical psychologist at Yale. And, uh, and I learned that what I thought science was is not how science actually works. And I think this is the experience that everybody that goes through a, a graduate program in science has, which is, oh, I thought we went 
in the science and we were curious and we investigated things and then we figured some things out and didn't figure other things out and then we shared what we figured out with others and then they said, oh, that's interesting and then they do stuff like that. And I realized, oh, well, that sort of happens, but that's not really at all what happens. What happens is you get into grad school and then you start to think about how am I going to get a grant? How am I going to get my first publication? What am I going to do to get in, make sure that I get into the one word journals rather than into the lowly journals? Uh, and it becomes all of this concrete work about the incentives for reward, for how it is we advance our careers and not about the science itself. It sort of really came home to me when we were looking at these articles that had been written by methodologists in the 1960s and 70s, talking about some of these challenges of research methodology. The fact that uh, a large portion of the research literature never gets published, uh, that it's, there's publication bias. You're much more likely to be able to publish a positive result than a negative result, which then skews uh, the veracity, the credibility of the published literature. Other uh, papers that talked about how research is low powered, how we're not even powering our research to be able to detect the effects that we're investigating, which is likely leading to misleading results. And the reason that this was stunning to sort of read these articles was not just for the insights, which were themselves stunning, uh, but because in the 1960s and 70s, they were writing about this. And I was in grad school in the late 90s. And I'm thinking, wait a second, we've known about this for 30 years? And what have we done about it? That these are the same problems that people are talking about today. This makes no sense. Uh, and so it was this sort of realization that understanding the inefficiencies in science, even understanding what the solutions are, are not themselves sufficient to solve the problem. Next, Tim talked with us about how he came to work on replication projects and how he sees that replication and transparency can improve science. Every grad student, every researcher, it doesn't matter if you're in grad school, has these, these moments of when you realize that um, you kind of want things to change. So a good one that always comes back to mind for me is I started my grad work at Berkeley and then moved to, to UVA to finish it and, and was just starting a new project at that point in a new lab. And um, there was this, they just published this really exciting result in a, in a high-profile journal. Um, and my very first you know, task to follow up on that was to take one of those key results and to, to replicate it, see if I could get the same conditions, the same result. Um, and so here I am in the lab, um, still reading the paper and trying to do the experiment, and I, I'm not seeing the result. And so you know, I start doing what you would do if you had the paper going back, trying to really dig through, you know, say, the references that they were citing for the methods to see if I could figure out what is it that I needed to do, like what was I, what was I missing, and I still couldn't figure it out. I, I had all the lab notebooks, physical lab notebooks, um, on paper. I was digging through those. I still couldn't figure it out. Um, eventually reached out to the former grad student, sat down with him, still couldn't figure it out, until I eventually realized it was this tiny detail that just got forgotten in the notes. He'd wrote it, written it in one time, um, and then just kind of failed to, to carry it along. Um, and, and I spent months doing the same thing, trying to understand, you know, is this, was this real, was this not, and what was the disconnect? Um, and that's amazing since I was in the lab and had access to more information than anybody else um, who's just reading this paper, you know, in their own lab somewhere else in the world. And it's just this realization of, 
wow, why are we not doing a better job of communicating um, both within as well as outside? Because you know, how are we ever going to make progress unless we do that? And again, it's not, you know, nobody's trying to deceive anybody here. It's just like Brian is saying, the motivations, the paper for that grad student, it's getting out, getting on to the next step. Um, and it's all these little details that, you know, maybe you don't think matter are actually probably the most important thing. If people have been aware of the shortcomings with which research has been carried out for so long, then why hasn't anything been done about it? Brian explains. You have to take stock of the cultural constraints that scientists who are trying to do the best work that they can are not able to do that because of the systems of rewards and uh, the availability of infrastructure and all of these pragmatic uh, concrete things that need to be in place uh, for scientists to live according to the values of science. And so that sort of was an awakening moment early in my career that then translated into uh, doing things as a, as a uh, early career researcher and in my f faculty position as I started at UVA to say, well, we're at least going to try to solve these problems for my own work, uh, for our own collaborations. We're going to make all of our data available online. We're going to uh, make sure that we do high-powered research. And so we've been trying to do that since uh, 2002 when I became a faculty member. Uh, and we, we have a technical lab. Uh, and so we've always just built tools for our own use uh, to try to do our research better. Uh, and then this opportunity came along to make those tools more widely accessible, and we just jumped at it. There's a fair amount of confusion about what reproducibility and replication are. Ryan and I asked Brian to explain how the terms have come to be understood, and perhaps misunderstood. We are contributing to part of the confusion uh, on these terms uh, because they have been used in different ways in different subfields, and it's only now that there's increasing alignment for how to talk about these terms. Reproducibility has been used in two ways. One is a general characterization of uh, the repeatability of evidence, that a core principle of science is that uh, an independent group can observe the same evidence supporting a claim, that it doesn't depend on the originator uh, and the original demonstration of that evidence. Uh, that's a general use of the term reproducibility. A specific use of reproducibility is given the same data, I don't have to repeat the experiment, but you can give me the data that was generated from that experiment. Can I produce the same result that you got uh, from that data? And so that narrower case is, is where reproducibility is used more frequently now. That general use case is how we have used it in characterizing these as reproducibility projects. Replication is used specifically for repeating procedures and seeing if the same data supporting the same conclusions is obtained. So you did a study, you found this particular evidence. Instead of you just giving me your data to see if I can reproduce that evidence, I take your methodology, I translate it into my context, uh, and run that methodology again to obtain new data and see if I get similar evidence. Replications might differ from the original studies that inspired them. Brian talked with us about how and why such decisions might occur, as well as what the results of replications can tell us. No replication is identical to the original study, right? The idea that there's been a term that's been used that is a completely uh, oxymoron of a term, which is exact replication. It just does not exist. 
there's always something different. At minimum, history, right? Time has passed, uh, but there will be changes in the season, the changes in the weather, changes in uh, some particular idiosyncratics of the methodology, uh, changes in the sample, something in those has changed. So given that, the question is, what does replication then mean? What are we replicating? Uh, it isn't the exactly what was done. So our argument, and Tim and I have a paper on this called Making Sense of Replications. Our argument is that claiming something that is a, is a replication, this is a replication of this prior finding, is a theoretical claim. It isn't a descriptive claim of, here I did the same procedure, so I should get the same results, right? It is not that, it is a theoretical claim that given what I'm doing now, and given the theory of what we think is responsible for getting that original result, we don't have any reason to expect a different outcome. And so change is inevitable, right? So say I ran the study in Germany uh, in German language, uh, and then I brought the study uh, to the United States and wanted to run it again, and I have no reason to expect that German versus US participants, say it's a behavioral study, would reveal different results. Uh, does doing a replication mean I have to administer it in German, right? No, you would say that's crazy. No, translate it. Uh, the, the, the participants speak English. You're going to have to present it in English for it to actually be a replication. So we can deliberately be changing things in order to have it be a replication, which is really to amplify that point that it's not the procedures per se that are the same, that need to be identical, but the way in which the question is tested so that there isn't any expectation of a different result. And the consequence of that is that if you have no reason to expect a different result given the current understanding of the phenomenon, then that gives a guide to how to deal with the evidence that comes out the other side. Now, when I do the study and I get a different result, then I have a couple of things that I might then have to consider. One is that the original result didn't really occur, right? It was a false positive, so maybe this is evidence against there being anything there. Another possibility is that my expectations were wrong, that I thought the units don't matter, and so this was a replication, but what if the units do matter? What if doing it in Ohio versus doing it in Indiana really makes a difference? Well, now I have a new hypothesis to test uh, that my assumption of generalizability across units was incorrect. And so now I have an opportunity to refine my theoretical understanding and then recognize my the idea that that was a replication is now redefined. In fact, it wasn't a replication if I now accrue new evidence to show that this unit's difference does make a difference. Uh, then now I know that that actually was testing the phenomenon differently. Next, Tim elaborated on Brian's example of replicating a study that was originally done in Germany. So go back to Brian's example of, you know, I did a, an experiment, you know, here in the States and I'm, I'm going to do it in Germany. Um, and I have no reason to think that, you know, that should make a difference. Um, but you might, right? And you have to remember that sometimes you want to, to test that exact difference. You want to say, no, I actually want to see what happens when I conduct this in Germany. So now you're actually purposely changing that because you think that you're either trying to figure out if it is generalizable or you're asking if it's different. And so that's pretty common in biology where we'll change model systems or we'll change the experimental approach to ask the exact same question. Um, and so that, you know, in some ways we have a luxury in biology where you can say, I can get the same reagents for the most part, um, but I still run into the fact that it's never the same. I'm never doing it in the same place, the same time. 
Um, and I'm never really getting the same material because I'm getting a, a different time of it, uh, as well as some slight variation of what's occurred since the, the first experiment. Um, but it gets back to that point of, do I, do I care? Do I think that's something um, that makes a difference? Because we do that a lot in biology where we'll purposely change it to ask, oh, I see some effect in, in this breast cancer model. Maybe I should check another breast cancer model and another one. Um, and what we're doing in this project is to try to narrow that way down to say, well, let's just check that very first model because you know, that's, that's where the claim was made. I can get those materials. Um, so let me do that in the exact same sense, um, at least as close as I can, um, knowing that there's still all these differences that are going on that I cannot control that might, that might be controlling it. Um, and some that you know, I know might make a difference, but I have no choice but to, 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 different, to change them, right? Just like the Germany-English example. Doug and I asked Brian why the inferences that come from a replication might differ between replications even when the methods, results, and perhaps even the data are the same. I think what it illustrates is that there are many dimensions on which we arrive at a scientific claim. It's not just you run a study and it tells you what the results are. It isn't just that you analyze the data and those are the results of that analysis. And it isn't just you observe the analysis and you decide what the finding was. All of those elements are areas where there can be a gap between what is happening in reality, what we observe, and how we interpret it. And so this is just the complexity of doing science, right? We're trying to be observers of the world and come up with conclusions that characterize what is happening in the world. And these different layers are different places where we can be misled. So we have a project, for example, where we um, had 29 independent teams investigate the same research question. The question in this case was, are players uh, who have darker skin in soccer more likely to get red cards than players who have lighter skin tone? And so the, the, the potential bias there is people with darker skin are more likely to get red cards for we don't know what reason would be, but that was the question, the hypothesis, just to see if there is that relationship. So 29 different teams investigated that question, but the twist that we made in the, in the study was that they, we gave them the data set. So everybody had the exact same data, and then they analyzed it in the way that they thought was the correct way to analyze it to answer that question, the hypothesis that we gave them. And the surprising outcome was that we got 29 different answers. No one took the identical approach to analyzing the data. Uh, they all had variations in what their conclusions were from no relationship at all to a quite strong relationship between skin tone uh, and red card. And, uh, and it, over time, you know, the teams would debate about what the right analysis strategy was. And what became clear is that multiple strategies are defensible. There isn't one right way to analyze the data. Uh, and yet, the conclusion varies as a function of the choices made in that analysis pipeline. So the point from our perspective is not that data can tell you anything that you want. Uh, that is true if you try to manipulate the data. The point is that there is uncertainty in any part of evidence that getting data does not unambiguously tell you what the answer is. Data is one step in a process of coming to inference and conclusions. So-called successful replications are those that arrive at the same conclusions as the original study. 
though in reality, a replication is successful so long as it's been carried out as planned. Next, Tim talked with us about what can be learned from replication studies, regardless of whether or not they result in the same conclusions as the original study. It's really fascinating when you, you, know, you, you do the same experiment, you get, you know, let's say, a different result or the same result, all of a sudden, everything that you didn't think made a difference or everything that you didn't even think of that could have made a difference all come back into play. Um, and all of a sudden, you're, you're left thinking, well, hmm, well, what, which one of these could have done it, right? Is it the one that you purposely did that you didn't think made a difference? Is it the change that you weren't even paying attention to um, that's now coming back and is a cause? Um, and so it's, it's, it's interesting because it gets back to that, that example of you know, the current mindset of one's right and one's wrong instead of the mindset of, well, you know, they're both right and they're both wrong. They both have, they're both, you know, for the knowledge of what they had at that moment and for the way they did it at that moment, that's the result that they got, um, again, you know, because there's no reason to think that they made anything up. Um, and so did we on the second pass. And so this is exciting. It's like, oh, well, that's interesting. We didn't think these were differences. I wonder if they're differences now. Um, and then the same thing is true if you get the same result. You're like, wow, we thought maybe these were going to be differences. And it turns out it doesn't matter, right? It's, it can generalize across those variations. Um, and, but you're doing it with this conceptual approach where you say, no, I want to purposely change this because I'm trying to test it. I'm trying to test it knowing that it may not work. But if it doesn't, it's because I, I'm purposely testing this intervention, this, this difference. Um, and, and you know that's a, a hard thing to get around, but I think that's, it's vital to remember that both of those are important um, for continuing you know, research progress, for gaining knowledge, because um, they each do different things. In their paper, Making Sense of Replications, Brian and Tim distinguish methodological discrepancies from errors. Doug and I asked Brian to explain what this distinction means to him. This is a big challenge. Science is hard, and there's, there's so much complexity that, and we're studying problems that we don't understand. That, that's, of course, why we're studying them. And so we're going to make errors, and we're going to make a lot of them. Uh, and we're not going to recognize them right away many times because it's just it's too complex a problem to know where the errors are. And so the, the, there, I guess there's two things that are solutions. Uh, one is the practical, uh, the concrete solution, which is transparency, uh, is the solution for this, which is if I recognize that I'm not going to be able to detect all of the things that are happening in my research, I'm not going to know what all the challenges are, then what I can best do to help identify where those errors occur is to make it as accessible as possible what I did and how I did it and what I found so that other minds can look at that and figure out where the gaps are, where the things are that aren't quite right. So that Tim doesn't have that problem of taking six months to try to figure out what happened, but rather can see exactly what I did and then work directly from that. The other part is a mindset challenge, which is, of course I wanna be right. Of course being wrong is something that scientists don't like the idea of, but if we sort of take seriously how science works, then we realize that we are all wrong about everything, right? Every, every scientific claim is wrong in some way. It's an approximation of how the world works. And it's not a completely accurate approximation. There are what, how science progresses is identifying what's wrong with our current models of the world and making them less wrong over time. And so one of the proactive ways that we can sort of embrace error is to recognize that everything we do is an error in some way 
And when someone finds an error in my work, right, I could feel it's very threatening to make my things more accessible for others to find errors. But the opportunity there uh, is that if someone else finds something that I did wrong or suboptimally, uh, then my reaction instead of being, well, you're a jerk for telling me that, is to say thank you. Now I understand the problem better. Now I can do more because you have helped advance uh, us in, in further away from ignorance. Next, Tim elaborated further on how transparency aids in detecting and addressing discrepancies in research. Like carrying on that farther, you know, trying to think of it also as um, there's an error and error makes, means wrong. Like that mindset should change. Um, you know, there's the, the ability that as long as, you know, different studies that are doing the exact same thing, if they're all done and, and it's transparent and you can understand what was done, you're really getting a better understanding of what's necessary to, like, what are those conditions that are necessary to observe that effect? Because that, that actually increases our efficiency, right? That's decreasing the uncertainty. Um, and it's not per se necessarily because somebody did something wrong. It's because there's always going to be differences and those shouldn't be, um, we shouldn't be afraid of them. We should actually embrace them, right? Because the more that we have, the more information that we have, you know, the more times we try to replicate something or we try to see if we can or cannot get it under similar conditions, all this does is improve our understanding of it, um, or at least understand where those gaps are if, if we're still seeing a discrepancy, um, opposed to this like on-off, right? One's right, one's wrong. Lastly, Doug and I asked Brian to talk with us about the work done at the Center for Open Science. So the Center for Open Science is a technology and culture change organization and our mission is to increase openness, integrity, and reproducibility of research. And we essentially have three primary activities that support that mission. One is that we build free open source software for researchers to manage their projects, to archive their data, to register their research designs, especially, essentially support their uh, research lifecycle to make it as robust, as reproducible as possible, and to make it easy for researchers to move things from private workflows that they use just within their collaborative teams into publicly accessible archives. So that's most of what our office does is, is work on that software. The other two parts of the organization are community building to try to move the incentives for researchers so that being transparent and reproducible in your research is not just a nice thing to do, but it is actually relevant for career success. Uh, the main barrier that we confront with that is that career success right now is defined as publishing as frequently as you can in the most prestigious outlets that you can, not uh, necessarily providing transparent, reproducible research. Uh, and so we work with the variety of stakeholders uh, in the research community, institutions, funders, publishers, societies, uh, to try to align the incentives so that what's good for science and what's good for the scientist are the same thing. And then the last area of work that we do uh, is in meta-science. And this is the team that, that Tim leads, uh, which is trying to study the scientific process itself. Uh, where is it that we have gaps in uh, reproducibility of evidence? Why do those gaps exist? What can we build as interventions that might improve the degree to which we can make progress in science more quickly, be more efficient with the resources that we have, and find solutions and cures faster. 
So the three of these things are sort of mutually reinforcing in our organization to try to advance openness, integrity, and reproducibility of research. That was Brian Nosek and Tim Arrington discussing their paper, Reproducibility in Cancer Biology, Making Sense of Replications, the feature article in the January 19, 2017 issue of eLife. You'll find a link to their paper on parsingscience.org, along with other materials discussed during the show. If you have any recommendations for Parsing Science, we'd love to hear from you, like we did from this listener. This is Debbie Friedman from Orlando, Florida, and I just wanted to say that I love your show and wanted to suggest that you check out the podcast Research in Action. It comes out every week, and Katie Linder does a great job of connecting to the human side of getting research done. You can call us toll-free at 1-844-XP-L-O-R-I-T. That's 1-844-975-6748. Let us know what's on your mind, and we might feature your voice in a future episode. Next week on Parsing Science, we'll conclude this two-part episode by talking with Tim and Brian about their experiences replicating a groundbreaking study in the field of cancer biology. There was, there was this fear of, well, what are you trying to do? Why are you doing this study? You know, others in our field have already done this. Um, what are you going to contribute? We hope that you'll join us again.